He was homeless for a while. He then found art. And I'm leaving that in. <laughs> no, please, no. That's my mum. <laughs> Go on, what were you saying? <laughs> I'm Kira, and this is the first episode of our new monthly podcast, Arts Insight, where I chat to creators of arts and culture here in Dublin. This podcast will be in two parts. In the first part, I speak to the actor Stephen Jones, who will be featuring in the upcoming production of Howie the Rookie that will feature in the Civic Theatre in Tala on the 15th of February. Um, it's part of the Civic's 21st birthday celebrations and Howie the Rookie was actually the first production ever staged in Civic Theatre back in 1999. So Stephen is an actor and a playwright from Tala. Um, he's been working in theatre, film and TV for the past 11 plus years. Some of the things you probably know that he's featured in are Red Rock, Love Hate, Dublin Old School, Aikino. So he came into Contact Studio and just to discuss um, his acting and his playwriting and obviously the upcoming production of Howie the Rookie and how important that was to him and how the whole production came about. So, Stephen, how are you? Very well, thanks, Kira. Thanks a million for coming in to chat with me today. Very welcome. Um, so, you are starring in the upcoming production of Marco Rose, Howie the Rookie. Yeah. I kept going to call it Howie the Rookie. <laughs> really? And I was like, I need to nip that in the bud. So um, tell me a bit about yourself to start, your background and how you got started. Yeah, well, I'm from Tala, I'm from Glenview. And um, I didn't really have much of an interest in, in acting uh, as a kid. It was more playing football. But I remember doing a... A small part in Oliver, the musical, in school, and maybe when I was in second year. So when I went to UCD then, um, I had been a member of um, a creative writing group based in Talla Library because I was starting to write short stories and different things. And when I went to UCD, the guy who was the mentor, if you like, or the teacher or whatever, of that class, Larry O'Loughlin, he was an author, he said to me, you should join the Drama Society in UCD because you might write a play one day, and that's what my mm. daughter did, and they put the plays on and blah, blah, blah. Oh. So I joined the Drama Sock in um, UCD. Were you studying drama now? No, I was studying English and history. Oh. And then I saw a poster for auditions for 12 Angry Men, the play, but I loved the film of that. Mm. And uh, I ended up auditioning just for the crack. And it went from there. I just kept doing loads and loads of plays and writing plays. And all my mates in Dramsock were all wanted to be professional actors. So I thought, well, maybe I could be a professional actor too. I would write little scripts and we'd make these little movies. So then I was going, actually, maybe it's maybe it was, an interest was there, but I didn't see it as something yeah. like that you would do as a job or as mm. a proper career. And then I ended up doing a film called Between the Canals with myself and Peter Coonan. And that came about because the... The director of that, Mark O'Connor, he had seen a play I'd written that Peter Coonan was the lead role in when we were in college. And he ended up casting the both of us and I got a few quid from the film board and we made it. And so from that, you know, I ended up doing more stuff and getting an agent and bits and bobs on TV and just loads and loads of theatre. You know, in the blink of an eye, here I am. Like, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. like Started out in drum sock. And yeah, then... I think I finished, I think I graduated from college 12 years ago or something. So yeah, I've just been acting and writing plays and even, you know, 
producing my own work, like what uh, Rex Ryan, who's also in the play, but it's his company on this one. My company, Awaken Sing Productions, we do the same thing. Like what he's doing, we try and take something we're passionate about, start off small scale so that because we don't have funding or anything like that, put it on and just using our relationships and our contacts, get it into places like the Civic and mm-hmm. other places we're going. And um, I'm trying to build it from, from the ground up. Yeah. You said, like, obviously you've done, like, TV and, like, film and that kind of thing. How does that differ from theatre acting? Um, it differs in that, well, it probably pays better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, theatre is, you know, it, it all depends. It depends on what the audience is like that night. It depends on the size of the venue, mm. how much you have to project your voice, how big you have to be how like what your live connection with an audience member a real person in front of you is like they're as much a part of the show as um as you are in a way and your relationship with everybody you have to make in the civic say when we do the show there it's going to be like two or three hundred people that have to feel they're part of a, a group in a feeling or environment but they also have to feel like i'm talking to each individual person feels like i'm just telling the story to them especially mm. in this play because it's yeah. a monologue play film and tv it's for an audience at home, mm. but it's really for the camera. It's just you and the camera have that relationship as opposed to yeah. you and 300 people. Which is easier? Like, would it be easier, do you think, talking to a camera or to try and... See, it depends. There's different skills. So when you start off and you, you sort of... People get a break in TV and film early and they do a lot of time behind the camera. They get much more experience. They start learning about where the camera is. Hitting their marks doesn't become such a big deal. They just become adept. It's like a different skill set. Mm. I don't think acting changes. People always think like, oh, you have to be smaller. You have to do nothing on camera. And it's all about the eyes. And, and like, there's elements of that that are true. But that's a very, you know, you can't just do nothing. Yeah. So it all depends. There's different, there's different little skills you learn. So like I could watch back stuff I did when I didn't really have much camera experience and go, oh God, can't believe I did that. But then doing something like Red Rock where I got loads of time behind the camera, you know, a lot of time in a recording character for another, on a show, you learn little lessons and little things and you get to watch back and say, oh yeah, I can see what I'm doing there. And, but theatre's sort of the same. You learn these little tricks, I suppose, uh, in terms of how to control the pace of a story, how to just instinctively know that you have the audience with you mm. and when to kind of crank up the gears and when to pull it back and pace and how to use your body and how to tell a story with every like every moment of the play. You're telling a story with your physicality, with your voice, you know. So uh, I think they're sort of the same. They're just different mediums. There's just different skill sets you have to apply. Mm. I'd imagine there'd be more kind of pressure on theatre as well because... I what I one of the things I love about theatre is the fact it's one of the only things that is right there in front of you. It's live. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's live, and and, and can happen. And you know, on TV and film, you, you get as many takes as you want. Yeah. It's more of a, a, it's more technical in a way, because you've got a, a, a room full of people all doing their jobs in a circle around you, and of course you never see that on screen. And you've got tape on the floor where you have to hit your mark and you've got to look at a certain angle and then you have to time things a certain way and you have to, when you're off camera, giving your lines for the other person's angle, you're wanting to try and replicate what you did so that the person's getting the same timing. And So it's a different thing. Whereas mm. in the in the theatre, you know, if you go to open a door and the handle snaps off, you know, there's no, mm. there's no oh, do-over. Stop, hang on, get the, yeah. get the guy in with the drill. Mm. It's like, you know, 
you hold it up to the audience and say, it's so I handled like that you. well. And you um, <laughs> think someone you actually did on. that. Um, <laughs> and you just have to, you just have to get on with it. And loads of little things like that have happened so many times over the years, you know, but that's what makes it exciting as well. Yeah. And tell me a bit about your own writing then. Yeah, well, I started off um, as in a creative writing group and I was kind of writing short stories and I think they were quite good for like when I was 15, 16, but they were heavily influenced. You're always heavily influenced. Mm. Everyone is. Especially at that age. Yeah. As a teenager, I read most of Stephen King's books. So I was writing these kind of American-y kind of slightly horror, but kind of stories with a twist type mm. thing. And that's why I think as well, Howie the Rookie is so important to me because when I got into college and I started thinking about writing plays and I started to read plays, I was still writing in this kind of, it wasn't my voice really. And I read Howie the Rookie and I watched Intermission and on the DVD extras, the director of the film talked about seeing Howie the Rookie the play and it was his first introduction to Mark's work in the bush in London with Aidan Kelly and Carl Shields. He said he remember being blown away and I thought, oh, I really liked Intermission and you could, I knew Mark then was from Tala the writer mm. and I was seeing little bits and places I recognised from Tala in the movie and that's one thing when I met Mark for the first time, he said it to me and I always say to people, people from Tala, like we have a real affinity for each other. Yeah. Like people from Tala know they're from Tala. <laughs> that's how I describe it. I actually found out that Mark and you were from Tala and I was like, oh my God, Yeah, yay. yeah, yeah. There's a thing and I think it's, you know, for me actually it probably stemmed a little bit from slightly negative experience, I think in the, at the start when I went to UCD, just of, not in a mean way, but, you know, certain people just reacting very strongly to my accent and stuff and me mm. not even realising I had an accent. Yeah. Or that, that it should have any negative connotation, you know, mm. and uh, or that or that Tala was this. They thought it was this mysterious place where you still everyone, actually kind of get you know, that a little bit. Well, it's kind of the last acceptable ism yeah. in society is is classism, I think, yeah. and people tend to some people, ignorant people, tend to associate your intelligence with your Very accent, you know, or, yeah. even when they're trying to be nice. I mean, I remember reading something in the paper about someone I know from Tala, and it was like the person was hugely complimentary in this write-up about mm. the person. The line was something like, the harsh vowel sounds belie a sharp mind. And I thought, why is what how yeah. why is how they pronounce a certain word, you know, uh, at Change, odds with yeah. how intelligent you think they are? And I read Howie the Rookie, and I just thought, Mark deliberately doesn't say it's set in Tala, like there's references to flats, there's references to the canal uh, that's at the edge of the mountain, there's yeah. the one, two, three bus, there's Lime Killin Lane, there's town. So he kind of deliberately, it's dotted around the place. But when mm. I read it, I went just hearing the, at the language, and even though the language is not necessarily always naturalistic, it was, I was like, this is Tala. There was something in it. So basically then I just spent a couple of years writing plays that were basically rip-offs of, of Mark. And then when I became a sort of, you know, again, bunny years, professional actor, I kind of didn't write anything for years, anything I thought was good enough. I left a lot of things unfinished and I was actually, I was living in town in a in a big house there were, with a load of actors. Uh, it was like a four-storey house on Ormond Quay. Carl Shields was living there and we'd become good pals and he was running theatre upstairs and he said to me over the years so many times, when are you going to write something for theatre upstairs? Because he knew I was a writer and he'd read some of my previous plays and, he, and I was like, I will, I will, I will. And then any time we'd, we'd, we'd go for a pint or we'd be chatting in the house or something like that, it, you know, the usual kind of waffle would, would start, no, I'm definitely going to write something, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he went, here's a day. You have this idea for you and Sean O'Carr's like actor who's also from Tala. And I was like, yeah, all right, fine. And then Not that was... like a deadline. Yeah, exactly. And then that was, that became, that became a play from Eden, which went on to do very well. I went to several venues and 
is going to the Peacock in November at the Abbey. And then a couple of years later, I wrote my most recent play called Northern Lights, which again was at Theatre Upstairs and Carl directed and again was with me and Shauna in it. And that is also going to the Peacock, so they're going to run mm. a week each in November. So yeah, I, I think I'm not as prolific a writer as maybe I'd like to be, but that's also because, you know, I've been acting quite a bit. So tell me about Howie the Rookie then. Enough yeah. about us. Enough about me. <laughs> uh, so Howie the Rookie, yeah. So as I said, it's a, so it was a hugely important play for me. And then it's also important, obviously, you know, given the last year with, you know, Carl sadly passing away and he was the original Rookie Lee and it, it was his favourite play that he'd ever mm-hmm. done. And I'd always wanted to do this, even before I knew Carl. And then it was like, oh, maybe we'll do it. But then Mark was directing Tom Von Lawler in a one-man version of it. And so I was like, oh, I can't do it now. And then a couple of years pass and you go, am I getting too old because the character has a five-year-old brother? And you go, no, well, people, you know, have kids later and you can justify <laughs> it, you know. But then with Carl passing away, I was going, maybe it should, it should be left alone because... I didn't want it to be like a big tribute act, but also didn't want to not acknowledge it. Mm. I went, I really want to do the play. And I think that plays are there to be done and legacies are there to be continued. Absolutely. And, and especially the likes of this. Yeah. And also 21 years since it was done. I know it was the first show on the Civic and we're obviously doing it as a part of their 21st, 21st. birthday celebration. You're playing at their 21st. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I'm the DJ at the, uh, at the Civic's nice. 21st. So we'll have the national anthem at the end Lovely. and some finger food. Ah, uh, yeah. Some uh, <laughs> volivants <laughs> and sambos. Um, so, yeah, but also I think if you just take the play on its own, reading it when I did as a 20-year-old or whatever, and I'm now 34, it was like, oh, I can, I can bring something interesting to this that I wouldn't have been able to do when I was 20 or 25 yeah. or even 30. And I think it's uh, looking at the play from the point of view of, right, let's say the Howie and the Rookie are these two characters and there's something very cool about the play, right? When you read the play uh, or you're, what you expected to play, you go, you've got this kind of hard man, the Howie, he's kind of tough and he uh, has a reputation as this really cool like fighter. He's mm. a goer. As they said in the play, and he, him and his mates are after the rookie, right, for something very funny, and then the rookie's this—he's described as a handsome so and so, and uh, you know he's suave and he gets the ladies. But actually, when you examine it, I was going, there's without getting into like you know masculinity and what's it all about. Yeah, there is a certain vulnerability in the Howie because half of the time he's putting on a bit of bravado for the audience. But the other half, he's telling them his innermost vulnerabilities and insecurities. Mm. So it is like an inner monologue. And I always thought about the, the lads I went to school with who you knew were kind of would be good goers or whatever, you know. They were never walking around telling you how hard they were yeah. or throwing shapes or deepening their voice. You know, they were just getting on. Mm. And I, that's the way I looked at it. Years ago, I would have played this guy as this menacing, hard man, what you're looking at, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But... There's a way, I think, of looking at it now from the point of view of, yeah, the, the, the fella can fight, yeah, he's got a reputation, yeah, he puts on a certain exterior front, but I was more interested in what's behind that. And I think that's where the play is actually a lot deeper than just a story about yeah. lads running around Dublin after each other. Mm. And likewise with Rex's choice that he made, you know, he's going, this guy describes himself as having no mates, only boards he's been with, he says, all right? And it's like, I know a few lads like that and over the years and... They haven't been these handsome, mysterious, ultra-cool dudes. They've been kind of sort of weirdos who kind of, like, happen to be... have a have a way to charm people, but it's actually all 
it's not real. Mm. They, they, they don't know. They have no real connection. And that's what we were kind of, we found we could explore just given where we were at in our lives and our Look age. Deeper and stuff. into kind yeah, of. Yeah, just getting into it. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily play that. You still play all the laughs, but there's there just, I just found more levels, more layers to the play than even I thought were there mm. in doing it. That they're getting to a stage where they're trying to figure out life and death and what is it. And there's an anxiety that comes with that. Mm. And reading the play, that's what I thought. And I thought, I think the world is getting more anxiety and anxious. Uh, I don't know whether that's just life or social media or media in general, but, you know, or it's whether it's trying to compete with people on Instagram and whatever it may be. Everything's heightened, kind of. Yeah, yeah. and I actually, that's what I saw in the play. I, I think, like, it's one of those plays as well, like, anyone who hasn't seen it has heard how good it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and there's there's, there's pros and cons with that. It's like... The pressure. <laughs> well, I kind of love that because yeah. I'm, it's kind of going, like, even, like, last night we had uh, Joe Duffy was in. And he's a great supporter of the Viking in Clontarf because he lives out that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was very complimentary and he sent a lovely tweet out. But he was saying, remember Carl's powerful performance 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's what we want. We want people who saw Aidan mm-hmm. and Carl doing it to go, wow, that brought back memories. Even if they see some similarity, well, that would be a great compliment, you know, yeah. even though we're doing our own thing. Um, you want people to remember it and... Then you want people to go, I've, oh, I saw Tom Von Lawler's one-man version. So this is great to see it with two characters, you know. Uh, we want people who have only heard about it to to finally get a chance to see it. And that's how you make something kind of, that's modern, a modern classic. That's how we describe it in our kind of blurb yeah. for it, you know, a, a modern Dublin classic. And mm. that's sort of what it is. It it's is, kind of iconic. Yeah. Mm. Like everyone in the acting circles coming up has has heard about Howie the Rookie. And even for, for lads, like so many people, they use it like a section from it for their drama school monologue, you know, yeah, when they're auditioning. Yeah. So yeah, people have a good sense of it, all right. Mm. And I think, I think that's exciting. I think that's pretty cool to be like, you know, um, part of its legacy, kind yeah, of. Yeah. For Talat, it's such a huge thing. Well, I'm very proud of being from Talat, you know. Um, yeah. And I love working in the Civic. I've been here so many times now that I always, yeah, I always, I always a little bit extra special for me doing it. But then doing this play. That in my mind, anyway, is a Tala play. Mark yeah. might not want to describe it as that, but in my mind, it is. In your head, it is. Yeah, uh, in Tala, on it, you know, going, the first show that was ever in the Civic, you know, big celebration for the Civic, which is such a great, uh, you know, uh, amenity and resource for. Oh, it's for fantastic. Yeah. And surrounding areas as well. So it's it's two monologues. Am I right saying that? Yeah. So it starts off with me. There's two characters: uh, the Howie Lee. That's you. That's me, and the Rookie Lee. So uh, they just have the same surname, Lee, as in the Bruce, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee. So the first half of the play is just me. And I'm talking about a day that happened to me where it starts off where we're after the rookie. And I'm delighted because I like being after people because mm. it's fun. And I really like being after someone like him because, you know, I like being after handsome people. And especially people with the same last name as me. Mm. No, I don't call them people. I call them a handsome something. <laughs> and uh, but then the story develop, develops into something else after that the encounter. And then in the second half of the play, we have the rookie twenty four hours later, reflecting on what happened the night before, but also what's about to happen to him this particular night. And then he encounters the Howie again. So it's a story about there's loads in there, mm. life and death and friendship and redemption and. I ultimately now have, and I could change my mind on this tomorrow, you know, I ultimately think that, it, that it's about survival, 
in, a, in as they say in the play, in a world of pain, yeah. which could be family dysfunction, where you're from. My character, he feels insecure when they're at a pub and there's women up there. He's like, I'm going quiet. I feel uptight in myself. I'm not talking. I feel embarrassed. I have a lack of success with boards I have, is what he says. But he's got his reputation as a fighter. So that's yeah. his currency. That's mm. what he can trade on, you know what I mean? His reputation for being a fighter. So he has to play to that. Whereas on the other side, the rookie's like, oh, you know, I've no mates. I've only, only these women I've been with. Mm. But a sore point for him is his lack of manliness. Yeah. So there's, deep down, there's a, there's a thing of going, we always focus on these things that we don't have. But even, they're not things that we should be aspiring to, you yeah. know? You know, like is, is, a lack, is, is, a, is having a lack of manliness such yeah. such a disaster, such mm. a bad trait, you know? So yeah. it's about people, these lads, for whatever reason it may be, they don't know, they're figuring out who they are, but they're looking for validation and they're looking yeah. for it all in the wrong place. Mm. And Really powerful. Yeah, I think it's important, but that it's never, that's not like, that's just me talking now. That's not yeah. like hammered home in the play. That's the great thing about the play. And in, in the bad version of it, they tell you all this. Yeah. Whereas they only allude, they only hint at it, and then so they just you're move allowed on. To figure it out yourself. Yeah, because the, these characters aren't sitting back going, "I've really reflected on myself, and now yeah, I see yeah. that actually what I mm. need to do is have a good cry." Mm. They're not doing that, mm. you know. They're just getting on with it, and they're letting you kind of find these things out yeah. about them. If you choose to, if you mm. see it, you might see it a different way. So it's the eighteenth of February. These are starting in the Civic. When are we in the Civic? Is it the fifteenth? I'm terrible, am I? I think it's the fifteenth. It's Saturday. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, ah, yeah. I think people will have um, will uh, will have a, a great night. It's a celebration of a lot of things. I think it's a celebration of the civic, obviously. Yeah. As it's they're coming up to their twenty first birthday, but it's a celebration of um, a Tala playwright. I think it's a celebration of a play that went from very humble beginnings to kind of this kind of iconic status, and then I think for me and Rex as well, in particular, I think it's a. It's our own little celebration of Carl Shields yeah. and his career and his favourite play. And we recently got a little plaque put into K1, CK1 in the Civic oh. Farm. And it was, you know, myself and a few of his mates chipped in to buy it. And uh, yeah, so if K1's available, book that ticket for yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so I think that'll be special. Yeah. It'll be a special well, night. Listen, thanks a million for talking to me. It's been a fabulous chat. Yeah, thanks a million. Thanks so much. And everyone go see Howie the Rookie. production of Howie the Rookie will be taking place in the Civic on Saturday the 15th of February. Um, if you're interested in buying tickets you can go to the Civic's website um, civictheatre.ie and then it'll show you Howie the Rookie. Um, tickets are only 19 euro or 17 euro concession and there's a 35 euro meal deal which is two courses as well as your tickets for the show. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to Stephen, he was a lovely guy and I'd really recommend that you go see the production. Um, I'm definitely going to be there anyways. In part two of the podcast, I will be speaking to Melissa Boyle, who's the executive director in Rural Red Arts Centre in Tala. So this is part two of the podcast. Um, I'm speaking to Melissa Boyle, who has been the director of RUA since 2016. Um, before this, she was the founding director of Void Contemporary Art Gallery in Derry. I wanted to speak to Melissa um, about apolitical and 
Rurad's partnership with them over the last few years. So I asked her who Apolitical are and what they do. Um, Apolitical are an organisation that are based in London, but they also have, it's almost like a production house for artists to go and make work in Maubourgay in the south of France. So they support artists who create work within a social political framework and they support projects that maybe wouldn't otherwise be realised. So like big idea projects that are quite different um, from maybe shows that would usually be seen in an exhibition space within galleries. So they could <coughs> exist outside of the gallery space or within Um and I suppose some artists, if their work is quite overtly political, um, can find it quite difficult to to work within exhibition spaces in terms of just galleries that maybe won't take as many risks. So apolitical support that type of work. Um, and I suppose how I came across them. And how I, I, why I thought that they would be a good partnership for Rio Red is that I worked with them in 2013 um, on a big project in Derry with Andre Malotkin. And it was working with human blood. I'd also worked with them on a project with uh, Santiago Sierra. And then after that, in 2016, I think it was, with Andre Serrano. Um, and it was a piece around torture. Um, whenever I, I took up the position in Rio Red, I wanted to create a programme that was deeply relevant to here. Um, and that was quite different from anywhere else in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And I feel that it's really important to create programmes that can engage with the people of the place. Um, and that they're not elitist in any way. Um, and that they're engaging, whether that's through the subject matter, which is usually the case, or the mediums that are are used. Um, And I also believe that wider discussions need to take place around the exhibition programmes that you create. So I suppose with all that in mind, um, I kind of designed or came up with this ethos of people, politics in place. And that came about after I was doing some research into Tala and South Dublin County and I suppose the maybe the various issues and social issues and political issues that needed to be discussed in yeah. a different context. And so while I was going through that process, um, I thought, OK, what artists would I like to show here? Would you have a huge um, say in kind of what comes in? and? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would. But I suppose that's where a political really kind of came into it. Then, you know, I had an idea around which artists I wanted to exhibit here and some of the artists that I'd worked with in the past. And I thought, I suppose at that stage, I wanted to bring the best international art that I could bring to Tala and South Dublin County. And what comes with that is also like a a big budget is required. So there's a few things in my mind, I suppose, at that stage. I wanted artists who would respond to place. And I also wanted 
artists who were of an incredibly high calibre to come here because I think the people here deserve it. Um, And that, but it also requires budget. So I thought, right, okay, how can I do this? (laughs) And so um, I approached Apolitical uh, and I said to them, would you like to be our partner for, you know, a year, I think it started off with, or a few exhibitions. What year was that? That was 2017. Yeah, so together we kind of came up with the programme that then fitted for two and a half years. After that, we're now entered into our, my, my third, year third year here, but we've had um, two and a half years of an apolitical programme. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been incredible. And, you know, they were very, very open to the idea. They like to work with people who are willing to take risks. Yeah. Um, who are willing to put exhibitions out there that the question, the challenge and that create, you know, sometimes difficult conversations, but important conversations that need to happen. So it was it was really it was a very good match. And um, we were able to create, you know, what, what I feel is a really good programme over mm-hmm. those two and a half years. And what's the reaction been? Because it's very different to anything that's been done in Brewer Red before. How have you found the response? I think it's good. It's always very, it's it's difficult because, you know, once, like anything, once you're in the middle of it, it's very hard mm. to ascertain sometimes how people perceive it or how, how they are experiencing yeah. it. Um and so, you know, your your guide to that is people's direct responses to you. You're looking at the visitor's book, you know, you're you're trying to gauge, I suppose, from other people that you will be in conversation with, both, you know, within rare red audiences and then elsewhere, you know, um, be it through our funders or through, mm-hmm. you know, the the arts audience within Dublin. So I think I think it has gone well. It's been positive <laughs> so far. Yeah, I think it has been. Yeah. Going through those responses, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gone really well. Um, you know, we've been incredibly lucky in that we have had full support from our board as well. So that helps. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I'd say, like most well-renowned artists that you've had come twice, actually, mm-hmm. throughout the partnership has been Franco B. He's an incredible artist. Um. What do you think he brought to Rural Red enough for you to bring him back a second time? Um, well, Franco, he he curated the first exhibition here, How to Say It the Way It Is. And then he had his own solo show here. Um, and throughout, I suppose, for both of those exhibitions, he held a performance art workshop, um, which also worked really well. I think... Um, Franco brings a complete humanness to to his his work. He, it's very hard to separate Franco from his work. Mm. He is his work. It's autobiographical. Um, yeah, and I think that that's very apparent to people who walk into the space that it they can completely relate to his experience through his work. And he does it in various different levels. You know, he, he engages with the senses. 
um, with his ex- recent exhibition here on Loved. You know, he used he used smell, he used um, sound as in kind of, you know, memory evoking. Um, he uses various different materials. And so he gets people at various different levels. And I think he is a real master of space as well and the way that he lays out his shows. It's like a, a journey, like a narrative that he brings people into that is that is his world mm-hmm. but all of the aspects of his world people can relate to because it's it's everyday life and I think that that's part of our exhibition program here is that you you know it's it's everyday experiences some of them are incredibly harrowing that people can relate to but they relate to them so with Franco um he his his work is very much about his experience, his life experience of growing up um, within the Salvation Army um, and just the the impact of living within an orphanage and an institution that that had on him or the Red Cross. Um, so like that, he, he wears that quite literally mm-hmm. on him. Like, you know, Franco is covered in tattoos, his tattoos on his face Um it's the Red Cross. He was number 22. Um, that was his identity. And, you know, he will wear that for the rest of his life. And so his work relates to that. It relates to the horrendous abuse that he went through. Um, it relates to the loneliness that that brought and the massive kind of impact that it had on him as a person and, and his identity within the world. Um, and then after that, you know, the Franco's work is incredibly hopeful, though, as well, because mm-hmm. within that, he put himself through education. He was homeless for a while. Through that journey, he found kind of art as a form of expression. expression. So um, it's, it's also, although his work is incredibly deep and moving, um, there, there is. There's, there's always hope in his work, and I think that that was really Which evident. Which is an incredible is, balance to have. It is, yeah, and I think he, he's very good at that balance. Mm. You know, within his recent exhibition, Unloved, he used the two rooms to create that balance mm-hmm. and that contrast as well. And that he brought people um, into the space, which was death and it was decay and rotting and you know all of the associations of the horrendous kind of abuse that he had experienced and just horror of the world of the contemporary world Um, and then you know the second space in gallery two he wanted to create this kind of more ethereal space that was heavenly it was light it was hopeful and the scent was lavender Mm. in comparison to the first space which was the smell of death. So there's always that balance, yeah, within his work. And the second space was beautiful and really uplifting. Um, so I think, yeah, Franco, he's he's an incredible person. He's a very, very special Yeah, you can person. tell from the interview that you did that he just seemed to get on so well. And something I found, one of the reasons that Franco stands out to me too is because even before I saw his exhibition, him being around... Rural Red, he just made such an impact on the centre. Just mm. him as a person alone, do you know, even aside from the art. Yeah, he 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 works in a really unusual kind of way, but it's also 
incredibly just straightforward. Mm. You know, he he's, he makes time for people. He spends time with people. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I hope that we do in Rio Red is that there is no separation between the artists that come here and the people who come into yeah. Rio Red, that there is no hierarchy involved, that... Um, you know, that the artists that we work with are approachable. And if you want to ask them a question, you can. And they will answer it or give you the best possible answer that they can. Mm -hmm. And I think just, yeah, Franco, he he fitted in, but he also made sure that he spent time with the the people here. And that just makes a huge difference. Um, But he also, he's interested in here, uh, as in this space and Tala and... um, yeah, that that makes a difference. Mm. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. No problem. Um, so later on in the month, there will be some bonus content for you. There will be an extended conversation with Melissa Boyle, Sylvia Serafinovitz and Franco B, where they discuss more about Franco and his work. Um, so definitely be sure to check that out. very much to my guests Stephen Jones and Melissa Boyle and thank you for listening and if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe tell your friends uh, write and review all that fun stuff Um, and yeah thank you so much Arts Insight is recorded edited and produced by Jerry Horn of Contact Studio Contact Studios, the South Dublin County Arts Office Initiative. Sorry to cut you off there. He was in my ear going, you have to stop now at oh. some stage. What time were you? I completely lost track of time.